Hi, welcome back to Sparks in Action. This is Donna. And tonight's guest is Ethan Nadelman. Ethan's been on the podcast before. I think it was August 2022. And just to give you a little background, Ethan is my dear friend, my ex-husband. And let me tell you why Ethan's on the podcast tonight. When I met Ethan in 1983, he was immersed in studying and teaching international relations and Middle East politics at Harvard. And while his work moved into the world of international and domestic drug policy, he has maintained his interest in and study of the current complex Middle East. So Ethan is here to come on to try to distill the enormous complexity that is Israel and the Middle East into a few key points. Welcome, Ethan. Nice to have you back on. It's nice to be back on, Donna. Great. So I'm going to start with my first question. Before I get into the first question, I just want to put my sincere prayer and thought out that may an enduring peace prevail in the Middle East, in Israel, and for the Palestinians. I truly wish for an enduring peace. Now, question number one. Israel is so often in an impossible position. It, it is in a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, when it comes to protecting civilians, borders, and overall security. What are some key points that might shed some light onto this crazy catch-22 that Israel is often forced into by its neighbors. Yeah, I mean, Donna, if you want to sort of boil it down to the basics and put the current you know, crisis in a broader historical context, uh, and part of it, first of all, depends on where you're coming from. And where I've been coming from on this issue for many decades, you know, back since you and I met, you know, over 40 years ago, I guess, was that ultimately what's needed here is a two-state solution or something that resembles a two-state solution. That we're talking about a, a, a part of land, you know, which Jews call, you know, Eretz Israel, which the Arabs call Palestine. Um, you know, which two people have a claim to. And, you know, one can argue which one's got a bigger or better claim. One can point to the fact that many of the Palestinian Arabs, um, you know, were living there and living there, you know, before the establishment of Israel in 1948. And many of them had some deep roots there um, that, you know, some over half a million, maybe 700,000 were expelled when Israel or expelled or departed, not just expelled, but departed in 1948. And that they have a legitimate claim to that land. Um, and the same with any other population that was pushed out with wood. On the other hand, you can point out the fact that, you know, for Israel, this has been a historical connection to the land of Palestine, the Haaretz, you know, Eretz Israel. And, you know, this goes back in our heritage and our culture. There have been Jews living there throughout for the last three and a half thousand years or so, except on the rare periods when when they were expelled. Um, and that, you know, the whole notion of Zionism going back to late 19th century was about a return to this land. Some of that was religiously based, some of it was secularly based, what have you. But what push comes to shove, you now have an established state of Israel that's been there with almost 10 million people living there, of whom about 8 million are, are Jews and about 20, you know, 20 plus percent are Arab or Muslim. Um, it's there. That's done. 
Meanwhile, you have the Palestinians who are living. You have Israeli Arabs who make up about 20 percent of the Israeli population. And you have in the West Bank and Gaza, millions of more people, you know, who are aspire to a national territory. Yeah. Yeah. Just go back. I just wanted to reiterate the um, the Arab Israeli population is 20 percent of the population in Israel. Correct. Roughly 20 percent. OK, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. 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 And so 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 if you start from that. To my mind, the fundamental problem that exists here and that stands in the way of peace in the Middle East is is the extremists and the fundamentalists within either camp. Yeah. Right. I mean, on the one hand, you have you have the Arabs, both external Arab, Palestinian Arabs and others who for many decades um, were saying we do not accept the existence of a Jewish state and land of a Jewish majority state in the in the land of Palestine. We don't accept that. You know, all of Palestine is ours and that's that. And many of them, including Hamas now and Hezbollah and Iran and others, still make that claim, thereby denying the right, the existence, or, or not denying existence, but the right of the of the Jews to have a Jewish majority state in that territory. Right. On the other hand, you have a part of the Israeli population, perhaps a growing part, which wants and believes that that all of Eretz Israel of, of Palestine should be ultimately Israeli territory. That the West Bank must ultimately be part of that. You know, Gaza they were willing to get rid of. There's much less of the biblical connection there, but essentially that the West Bank must be ultimately part of Israel, right? And the result of that is we've had an Israeli occupation of the West Bank now for over half a century. And when people put out the argument that, you know, what you have with Israel is an apartheid state, that's an inaccurate claim when it comes to Israel proper and its original, you know, 48 borders. But when you look at the ongoing Israeli occupation of the West Bank for the last 55 years, it meets the legal definitions of apartheid. And that, that's tragic for me as a Jew and as somebody who's identified in some respects as a Zionist all my life to say Right. So when you have these two extremists there, I mean, that presents a fundamentally incompatible situation. And when you see in the most recent government that uh, Netanyahu was always been to the right of center, but immensely, you know, um, he's been, you know, longest serving Israeli prime minister in, in, in Israeli history. When he allied himself with two what I would call Israeli fascists, you know, Ben Gvir and Smotrich. And when they started to do not just things that would endanger the nature of democracy in Israel, but also an increasingly aggressive policy of occupation and settlement and, you know, in the West Bank, I mean, they're really sort of pu pu pulling, uh, you know, fuel on the fire. Now, that said, it's not at all clear that any of that drove what Hamas did. Hamas was created basically in the late 1980s, more or less at the time when Arafat and the Palestinian leadership decided to, to accept the fact that Israel would exist. When you had the famous Oslo Accords in 1993, when both sides said, OK, we're going to work towards a two-state solution, right? And Hamas said, no goddamn way. We want, they were, they believed in an Islamic state. They believed that the, the, the stuff they spun on the Jews was all about the destruction of the, of the Jews in the land of Palestine, right? When Hamas attacked, you know, uh, when, when Hamas attacked, not just Hamas, but Hamas, Islamic Jihad, you know, out of Gaza a few weeks ago, it wasn't about seeking peace between, you know, the Jews and the Arabs in the Middle East. It was about part of an historic, you know, design that ultimately aims to eliminate the Jews or subjugate them in the land of Israel. So those people who believe in a two-state solution hope for that. The notion that Hamas did anything or intended 
for this to ultimately result in some sort of, you know, fair and just peace in, in, you know, in that territory, I think are just, you know, ill-informed. Yeah, I mean, and that that actually gives rise to the the question, you know. So, so I was going to ask you, like, let's talk about what gave rise to this extreme terror organization that Hamas is, um, and how that mitigates any uh, good faith efforts that are creating peace treaties uh, and pushes against it, as you just mentioned, you know, with a completely different agenda. Um, and also, you know, not, I don't want to give airtime to their propaganda machine, but boy, their propaganda machine propaganda machine has has really gained some traction. Well, let's just say right. So, the, on the first thing about Hamas coming to power, you know, they came, as I said, because they were opposed to the right. movement of Arafat and Fatah, his political party, and the what emerged as the Palestinian Authority to reach an accommodation with Israel and work towards a two state solution, one way or another. They also believed in a much more Islamist government. You know, the Society that they run in Gaza, you know, is fairly oppressive. I mean, you don't want to be a gay person there. And, you know, women are not accorded the same rights. And there's a lot of oppression. It's been essentially a dictatorial government there since they got elected in 2006. But keep in mind, the other thing that Hamas did do was that in the early 2000s, as you know, and then when Israel handed over and just, just departed from Gaza, I think in 2005, said, we're out of here. Right. And the Israeli army even used even used violence in order to take out the you know, Israeli settlers from uh, from Gaza who did not want to leave. But when that happened, you know, the Palestinian Authority had become increasingly corrupt. And Hamas was not just a terror organization. They were also one that was providing social services for people in Gaza that the government, the Palestinian government, was not providing. And so they had some popular support. They did win a legitimate election. They may not win the majority of vote, but they won a legitimate election you know, in 2006, I think it was. And then there was the final you know, conflict between them and Fatah, where Fatah, and, you know, that, and was essentially expelled. So keep in mind, Hamas did provide real services. They were real. Now, mind you, since they've taken over, I think this is one thing that people forget. If when, Ham if when Hamas had come to power, even the year before the Palestinians, if what they had done was to say, we are just simply going to lay down our arms Right. Except for internal security, we are not going to be building you know, tunnels in order to get into Israel proper. We are not going to be launching occasional weapons. We're going to control our extremists, the Islamic Jihad, which is a separate little group in Gaza. If they had done that, we are going to show the Israeli center that we can make a legitimate peace with the Jews in Israel. And we are thereby going to provide a model for a potential peace between the Arabs living in the West Bank and Israel and the possibility of the emergence of some type of two-state solution. If they had done that, if they had practiced that, that would have empowered the Israeli center. It would have empowered those who believed in ultimately reading, reaching a, a two-state solution. It would have disempowered you know, uh, Netanyahu and those to the right of his, the, the secular, you know, hardcore Zionists, the religious Zionists, the ones who want to say, all of this is our territory. That would have been a monumental thing to have happened, but they didn't. That was not their mission, right? That was not their mission. It was not their desire. And the fact that they have allied with Hezbollah, with Iran, and with others who don't have an interest in stabilizing this situation, it means that you have a recipe for this, for what happened a few weeks ago and for this ongoing nightmare and disaster.
Yeah, and, and weren't they receiving enormous funds from, was it UNESCO? Who were they, UNWAR, or what's the organization? No, not, not, not enormous funds. I mean, they were, okay. they, were they, they were receiving, I mean, these funds were going for the refugee camps that are there, et cetera. So that was not the major issue. I think the bigger the bigger issue was Iran, Iran supplying weaponry and things like that, and both the Hezbollah, you know, which is the, 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 the Shiite uh, organization in Lebanon, which is the most powerful political force in Lebanon these right. days. So I think that, you know, now, if you ask why did this happen a few weeks ago, I think the consensus is that is that you know, Hamas saw that that Israel and Saudi Arabia and the U.S. were talking about a potential, peace, you know, some sort of peace that would involve a set of accommodations um, with one another, a growing recognition of Israel in the Arab world, including in the Gulf. You know, you saw the smaller Gulf states, you know, in the Abraham Accords accepting Israel, you saw Morocco right. reaching uh, you saw some others as well. And they see, you know, and you see more and more of the Arab governments being kind of just pissed off with the, with the Palestinians, never really, you know, they, they're pissed off at the Israelis for the, the occupation of the West Bank and the growing settlement policy, but they're also pissed off at the, the ineffectiveness of the Palestinian leadership. So I think Hamas saw all of this and saw themselves becoming increasingly irrelevant. And, you know, fewer and fewer, it's not like Arab governments were sending them lots of money so that they could uh, improve their situation. And remember also, you know, the, the Hamas came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was not a terrorist organization the same way, but a strongly, you know, is, you know, Islamic state type organ, believing in a, in a Muslim state and and which and we're at odds, essentially, with Saudi Arabia. I, I'm getting a little too much in the details here. But yeah. I think that the, the reason they launched them was they figured, you know, hell, things are going the wrong direction. And also remember, to some extent, their policy is that if what needs to happen is for thousands of Israelis and tens of thousands of Palestinians to die in order to derail some potential peace process, so be it. So be it. Right. I mean, I mean, look, you look at the situation now. Hamas is a tough situation because they have no place to hide except in their tunnels and underneath civilian populations. Israel, in responding, if it wants to obey the laws of war and the laws that we say you have to be a proportionate response, Israel cannot just be bombing any any civilian building where Hamas has a office or, or weapons underneath. They have to take into account the civilian population. So you have two which are in difficult situations. But look, what Hamas did, I mean, what they did in that raid, and by all accounts, it succeeded far more than they expected. I don't think what you're, I'm reading is that they didn't expect to seize so many hostages. They didn't expect to get so far in Israel. In other words, the the, the failure of the Israeli intelligence and the Israeli de defense was monumental and more than anybody expected, either the Israelis, Western, anybody, or Hamas. Right. But what they did in terms of, of, of the of the brutal killings and the mowing down of people and sometimes the torture and the, you know, eye to eye killing stuff and the seizure of seizing of of hundreds of hostages. I mean, it, it, I mean, it really showed their true colors. You know, you know, when, when you when you hear the latest report of some somebody from, I guess it was Hamas, it was John Jihad, grabbing some Israeli's phone and calling a guy, hey, Ma, calling back home. I just killed 10 Jews. You know, I mean, some of the really despicable stuff that you saw being done. So, I mean, Hamas, Israel's desire to basically obliterate Hamas is totally understandable. Yet at the same time, the principal obligation of political leadership is not just to act out on vengeance, it's to act strategically. 
it's for the Israeli government to pursue policies now, military and other policies now, that most increase the chance that this situation will be a lot better for Israel in years down the road. Well, it and- seems... It seems that the Abraham Accords are a really great step in that direction. Well, they are. They're very much so. But there's a few things to keep in mind. The first one is, is that even as those governments have reached peace agreements, oftentimes the population, the the broader population does not feel the same way. And so, you know, these are monarchs, these are dictatorial governments, so they can do to some extent what they want, but they can't just run roughshod. And the popularity of the Palestinian cause in the Arab world, which has been, you know, it, it, it both has legitimate origins in the fact that the Palestinians were, in fact, expelled by the Jews and that they, et cetera, et cetera. But it also has the fact that for decades, Arab governments, which did not want to have democracy, you know, they would point to the Jews, the Jews oppressing the Palestinians and make that became an enormously popular cause, you know, throughout throughout the Arab world. Remember also, and this is a point that so many people fail to appreciate, you know, and this also goes to the, I think, the next point that you wanted to get to, Donna, which is this really upsetting um, mobilization, uh, you know, on the left in the United States, Um, you know, just, you know, with liberate Palestine and, you know, not even stopping for a second to acknowledge the slaughter of the Jews, um, you know, in that Hamas attack. I mean, that type of brutal insensitivity is like, like, you know, that the, the Jews don't matter or, or because the Jews have been oppressing the West, the, the, the Arabs in the West Bank, that therefore this type of slaughter of civilians is, is permissible, you know. But, you know, one thing that people oftentimes forget is that when you look at the Jewish population of Israel, which makes up about 80% of the population, Roughly half of that population comes from the Muslim world, from the Arab countries, from Iran, from Turkey. You know, people think, you know, that Israel is this white colonialist enterprise. Right. And there was an element in which that was true of northern European, eastern European Jews, you know, making Aliyah and moving to Palestine between the 1880s and and 1948. Right. Um, although even those would claim, you know, that they, you know, they were not like the French or the British or the colonialists coming to occupy a territory. These were the Jewish people returning to the land. I was going to say, audience. why would you even call them colonizing? They were returning well, because, to a land that well, was their home. For two reasons. I mean, one is when, you, when it's been 2000 years since you've been home, you know, one can say that the, the connection has been disconnected. Secondly, you can point out that many of the Jews returning, you know, were oftentimes secular Jews. They were left wing Jews, et cetera. They didn't have that religious connection. Right. Thirdly, that the Romans were the earliest Zionists, including Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, considered going places other than Palestine, considered places in Israel I mean, in Africa, or Latin America. So you can you can quibble about this stuff. Right. But essentially, you know, for the Jews, this has been a return to the homeland. But even more importantly, when you consider the fact that half of the Jews in Israel and probably a disproportionate number of the Jews supporting Netanyahu and others on the right came not are not the descendants of that migration from the West that created Israel in the first place, but in fact, are descendants of parents and grandparents and great grandparents who came from the Muslim world, right? Sometimes coming from places like Iraq where their families had lived for over 2000 years, from Yemen, from Morocco, from even Syria, Lebanon, you have it, Egypt, right? These were places which had Jewish populations going back millennia, 
right? And who consider themselves Jewish Arabs, right? And who spoke Arabic was their first language and who occasionally, and who, you know, would be oppressed as Jews were in the Christian world, but probably not with the same frequency and severity as happened in the Christian world, right? And, that, and most of them were not even, in fact, Zionists before 1948. But when the state of Israel is created, these Jews living throughout the Muslim world are subjected to riots, to pogroms, you know, you know, as with the Palestinians, you know, who, who either fled or got pushed out in 1948 from from what became Israel. So these Jews had to flee their homes where sometimes they had roots going back, as I said, hundreds, if not thousands of years. Right. And, and they are not necessarily white people. They're not like you and me descended from the, uh, you know, Ashkenazi noise and you. It's a different group. So I think the vast majority of the kind of progressive left in America just doesn't even know that fact. And, and if they did, I don't know if they'd want to acknowledge it. Yeah. I mean, that that's as disturbing as everything that happened on um, October 7th is. Um, there's a, another whole level of deeply disturbing things happening right now, particularly on campuses and sort of the leak moral leadership of some campus administrators is a whole nother conversation. Um, I'd like to, in the time- Well, you know, it have- is a tricky issue, Don, about that thing, because, you know, on the one hand, it's also important to remember that- you know, the universities have an overwhelming obligation to free speech, right? And so the question of what the appropriate response of a university administration should be to uh, students or faculty making extremist statements, you know, as individuals, it's a tricky one. I mean, I, I, I hate it seeing what came out of, you know, the mouths of those of those Harvard students, some of whom are now retracting and, and pulling back, you know, or with that Columbia professor who's, you know, expre- you know, celebrating, you know, the Hamas attack. I hated that stuff. The question, though, of what a university should do in response to these things and whether it's their obligation to engage. Now, the fact that universities have already begun to engage in different forms of suppressing speech, sometimes in response to things happening on the left and people on the left not wanting to allow, you know, right-wing speakers to come in and stuff like that. So we have a a growing disregard for basic First Amendment protections with on the left and the more radical left. And I think that's a, a bigger issue, which sets the stage for what's been happening of late. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's not for this conversation, but you know, there's sort of the social dynamic of it, and then there's also like the psychological dynamic of it, and the you know, I re- I really believe that there's you know sort of like all the the it's like beyond virtue signaling, and I think that there's you know lack of executive function, and you know there's so many dynamics that can take somebody who's not willing to do any really sort of rigorous thinking and just kind of pull them into a sway and have them swept up in a current of something they know nothing about and get into that sort of mob mentality. That said, that's a different conversation. Um, So I'd like to pivot towards, I was gonna ask you about Egypt's role, but that's complicated. We don't really have time. but I would like to move into thoughts about what could a two-state enduring peace look like and what and what would have to happen? Obviously, Hamas has to be out of power. What ha- would have to happen for, for things to get set in motion towards a 
possible sustained peace? Well, I, I mean, I, it, the question is whether it's, I mean, what's even possible at this point, right? Um, uh, uh, because when you look at the options, right, uh, I mean, you look at what are the options for Israel here, right? One is that they could ultimately absorb all of the West Bank into Israel proper, right? Um, and if they do that, they then risk the possibility that years down the road, Israel will no longer be a, a Jewish majority state, right? That you'll have a much more equal, you know, and and given when you look around you in the Middle East, it doesn't give you a cause for hope that such a thing can actually work, right? So if they absorb the West Bank and accept the, the Arabs as equal citizens under which would be under Israeli law, which would they be required to do? Remember, the Arabs who live in Israel proper, you know, get the right to vote. You know, if, just last year, the Israeli Arab party was the third yeah. biggest party in Israeli parliament, right? So so that's one possibility, but you can't see Israel going there. The second possibility is they take over the entire West Bank, but they continue to treat the the, the Arabs in the West Bank as second-class citizens, you know, deprived of the right to vote or at least to vote in national elections and what have you, and that they and that and, and subject also to safeguards, and that then legally makes the definition of apartheid and makes the entire is you know state of Israel an apartheid state, which would be a source of anti of growing anti-Semitism all around the world, which would undermine Israel's relations with the rest of the Western world, which is essentially not sustainable. The third possibility is that Israel takes over the West Bank and, and expels the large majority of the Arabs living there, the few million Arabs who are living there, right? Well, that would once again just create a meltdown in terms of relationship. And there go the Abraham Accords. There goes Israel's legitimacy in the Western world. That type of ethnic cleansing, while it might have been acceptable in centuries past or in the early part of the 20th century, is just a no longer a tolerable thing to do. And as a Jew, to see other Jews engaging in the ethnic cleansing of the Arab, the Muslim population in that area, is just seems intolerable. So the last option, the only one that seems just to me, is to reach some sort of two-state accommodation, right? Now, if you think within Israel, I've always seen the debate in Israel as essentially being between two sides, right? I mean, the, the Israeli left is like down to less than 5% of the population now. So they become largely irrelevant. But essentially, the debate in Israel is between those people and those leaders who are obsessed with Israel's security and those people who are also claimed to be obsessed with Israel's security, but for whom the occupation and retention of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, is Jewish territory, is the ultimately the most important thing. And to my mind, I'm going to side with those people who are obsessed with Israeli security over those who are insisted Judea and Samaria because of our historical biblical connections has to be part of a greater Israel, right? That those are the ones who are ultimately endangering the livelihood, the well-being, the future of, of a Jewish majority state, of Jewish majority state in that territory. Now, the question is, can we move in that direction? And unfortunately, you know, what's happened in Israel over decades now, not just under Netanyahu, but even sometimes under the other governments, is you've had a steady growth of the Jewish settlement in the West Bank, both legally and illegally. There are now over half a million Jews living in these settlements and be given special rights. They get to vote in elections in Israel, whereas the Palestinians living in the West Bank don't get to do that, right? So you have an occupation policy that is now making it more and more inconceivable that you could actually have a viable, you know, Palestinian state in the West Bank. Now, if somehow the politics shifted, and it was an acknowledgement that this needed to stop, 
it would have to begin with a with an ending of the settlements policy, which is not going to happen under the current government, and especially with those fascists, Ben-Gvir and Smotrich in the government with Netanyahu. I mean, hopefully one little silver lining of the current conflict is that those guys are left in, you know, tatters and pushed out and, you know, and their reputation is destroyed. But what would have to happen would be moving towards an effective two-state solution with an essentially demilitarized Palestinian you know, state or quasi-state, it would mean that ultimately that the Jews who want to continue living in the West Bank would live there, but they would not be living under Israeli sovereignty. They would be living under Palestinian sovereignty, either as citizens of that Palestinian state or as Israeli citizens with some rights there, right? It might involve some population transfer, I mean, territorial transfer, where certain parts of Israel, where the Israeli Arabs live, might be traded to the West Palestinian state and vice versa, where some parts of the West Bank, where the settlers are most dominant, would become part of a of a continuous Jewish state. So there are proposals out there. And there are ideas like the idea of a, conf- of a confederation of some sort. I mean, keep in mind, Israel and the Palestinian Le- Authority have collaborated on security issues, on intelligence issues, on right. water issues, on electricity issues, on policing issues for, for some decades now. Right. So there is, the, there is the basic groundwork of making something work. But at this point, the Israeli center, unfortunately, has moved so far to the right, um, you know, that I don't know if there's any possibility of um, some revolutionary change among the Jewish population in Israel that makes a actually just peace possible down the road. But, even, but that's even the only if, hope. Well, you know. quick question, because we have very little time left. But even if uh, even if more centrist, you know, uh, policies and centrist lawmakers came in came into power and that was the dominant movement you're still going to get pushback from more extreme uh groups and unless you have extreme groups that basically want jewish people gone from the region you know you will there's no negotiation there either Unlike in decades past, they will have less and less support in the Arab world for what they're doing and on the left in the Western world. Right. What what has given what has given support right to the Palestinian cause in the Western world has been the fact that Israel has been making it more and more impossible to envision a future two state solution. I mean, that's been an Israeli settlements policy. Now, the fact that you've had an absolutely pathetic Palestinian leadership, that the Palestinians have a well-earned reputation for turning their back on any deal, hoping for a better deal when, in fact, the only deals they ever get offered in the future are worse, right? So there's been a horrific failure of leadership on the Palestinian part, right? Yeah. And but the fact of the matter is when you talk, I mean, you look at some of the most senior Israeli national security figures, and ultimately many of them will say that to have Israel continuing to occupy and subjugate millions of people in the West Bank is going to gut the soul and the heart of the Jewish state in Israel, that this is not a viable long term solution and that we're better off doing the best we can to ensure security. Right. And the demilitarization of any Palestinian state that borders us and to get a consensus with other Arab states to do that. Look, in the end. Egypt is now at peace with Israel. Not a great peace, but a real peace. Jordan is. Other countries are. Right. I mean, so the possibility and the fact that you're still going to have countries like the Iran under Ayatollah Khomeini, the current regime, trying to sabotage it. And they still have the problem with Hezbollah. But quite frankly, 
if you look at all the options, Donna, I mean, you know, the other options, I mean, quite frankly, for Netanyahu and the guys on the right, the ones in power now, the fact that what they're doing is actually just pouring gasoline on the cancer of anti-Semitism throughout the world, they don't give a damn. To some extent, their view about the Jews in the diaspora, you know, is like, hell, the hell with them. They can come live here, you know, and the fact that they are really I mean, if I I mean, quite frankly, if I had been born a Palestinian and living in the West Bank under this current thing and both between the pathetic nature of the Palestinian leadership and the ever expanding, uh, you know, Jewish settlement policy there and living in a, you know, I mean, basically, you know. Uh, an occupied subjugated situation, you know, uh, my heart would go out to them as well. It's uh, it's not fair. It's not just. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's a tough one, right? It's a, it's a very very tough one, and I don't know that anybody's got any effective answers. Um, and if this thing continues to blow up bigger time in the Middle East, you know, I, I don't know, years ago I would say, you know, if ever the fanatics, the fundamentalists in Israel came to power. That could be the end of the world, because when you when you when 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 you if if ultimately you know religious Zionists, the ones who want to expel the Arabs and want to believe in this thing and you know create their own kind of theocratic Jewish state in Israel, and you have them on our side essentially, the Israel side, and the other side you have you know the long tradition of Muslim fanaticism as well, uh, you know, and they have both have nuclear weapons at that point or access to them. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to finish on a sad note here, but, you know, it's a, it's a bleak situation. All right. Let's let's do it. Let's do a, a cliff note here. <laughs> extremism. Bad. <laughs> logical, yeah. logical uh, result of extremism. Just not good. Um, yeah. But um, let's. Um, there, well, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a tough note to end on. But um, so I guess. Well, uh, just say to everybody listening, just keep researching and learning and... Um... And understand that people who say liberate Palestine, if what they're referring to is that the, the Palestinians have a right to a state and a two-state solution, that's one thing. But for many Jews, when you hear liberate Palestine, that's basically a synonym for all of Palestine, including the land of Israel, is ours. Mm -hmm. And and if that's going to involve a, another Holocaust of 8 million Jews or the subjugation of the Jews living in Israel... And that's why when I hear that phrase, liberate Palestine, I look at them and saying, you know, I have the feeling where you're coming from is based in profound ignorance, some conscious or unconscious anti-Semitism, you know, an ignorance of the basic history of the region. Right. And, and, and highly hypocritical because of your failure to point out, you know, things where, where, where significant genocides and mass murders are happening that, that, that go far beyond anything that we may condemn, rightfully condemn. Yeah. Israel for doing. Yeah. Use your brains, people. I mean, people listen to this podcast. And I, sorry, I didn't need to insult you. You're, you're all using your brains. Um, but but push back challenge people. I saw a really great little video of, um, in, oh, we have to go, an Arab-Israeli, basically non-Jewish, you know, just talking to somebody at some university saying, I have more rights than you can even imagine, and talking about how great it was to be a citizen of Israel, and this girl working the desk at a free Palestine, you know, uh, rally, had didn't even know what she was standing up for. Right. That said, 
may peace prevail, may some sort of enduring peace prevail. I think everybody, every Jewish person I know truly wants that. And I think every good, decent Palestinian person wants that. Ethan, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for sharing all this information with us. A lot to digest. Okay. Take care, Donna. Thanks for asking me. Okay. It was a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye.